Today's episode of Nomad Athlete Radio is brought to you by the Cherry Marketing Institute, an organization funded by North American growers and processors of Montmorency tart cherries. Montmorency tart cherries have been the subject of lots of research, and to date, more than 50 studies have shown the potential benefits of the Montmorency varietal, ranging from inflammation and exercise recovery to sleep. Check out the Cherry Marketing Institute website to learn more, www.choosecherries.com, and enjoy the episode. Hi, this is Hope. This is Kareem. Hi, this is Katie from Washington, D.C., and you're listening to No Meat Athlete Radio. Hello, and welcome to episode 142 of No Meat Athlete Radio. I'm Matt Frazier, joined by Doug Hay, who's fresh off another ultramarathon victory. <laughs> Not quite a victory, but definitely off an, an ultramarathon. Not a victory, I know. So this was Sid Garza-Hillman's race. We talked about it a couple times on this podcast. The first inaugural Mendocino Coast 50K. And Doug, I was expecting you to go out there and get a win. And then I saw Sid tweet a picture of himself with the winner, and it was not <laughs> you. Well, to be fair, the actual winner is does hold the world record for a 12-hour ultramarathon. Of, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> it wow. is a world record holder, ultramarathon holder. And while, you know, while maybe run, or winning races here and there, I am certainly not um, mm. a world record holder. That's so. not, yeah, that shouldn't be fair. I mean, it's not. not, not I, was, I was expecting you to get a win for, the, for me and the show oh, and yeah, all the nice people all the, out there. All the plant-based athletes out there. Yeah. yeah. But it was a vegan race, right? It was not, a vegan not race. limited to vegans, but vegan food. Yeah, served all, at it. all the food, the pre and post race food, and all the aid station food was vegan, which was pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, it was fantastic. It, it, Sid put on this course, was just incredible. It started out along the cliffs on the coast. You've been out to Mendocino, mm-hmm. how pretty it is. And then you head up in the redwoods, and it was just a really, a really neat course. And um, it was great to see. I ran into a bunch of listeners. Yes. Ran into several. I, can I give some shout outs? Yeah, go for it. I was uh, having dinner at the Raven, which is the restaurant at the um, the Stanford, Stanford Inn. Inn. Yep, the vegan resort. And uh, at the middle of dinner, a guy leaned over and said, "Let me introduce himself." And it was a guy named Chris from Oklahoma. How did he know it was you? He said he recognized my voice. Wow. Yeah. Look at that. And then there was like Linda Stern. from Connecticut and. Mate, mate, mate. I, I'm totally butchering that. Pretty good name. shout out. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who ran her first ultra, which was pretty cool, and she she finished strong. And then a couple others whose names I didn't catch, but it was it was neat to meet some people and and uh, yeah, it was just a great a great event. Cool. That is that is very good. I'm glad it went well. Uh, I can't imagine putting on a race that that just seems like a, a crazy amount of effort and and anxiety that would go into that. So I'm glad yeah. everything went well. No yeah. disasters. No one disasters. one ankle twist or something. Sid told me. Yeah, I think there were a couple like little minor things, but no, nothing big at all. Nothing big. And nothing that was in his control. Right. Good. All right, so today we are talking about marathon training. Boston Marathon just happened a few weeks ago. Uh, I honestly didn't pay that much attention to it, but I know that when it happens, the world does pay attention and everyone starts <laughs> wanting to run marathons, yeah. uh, which is a wonderful thing. I think that's, you know, it's not a sport that has a lot of mainstream publicity. So when it gets it every year from Boston, uh, I think it's really good that a lot of people get inspired and and uh you know motivated to to try it which is not i don't remember what actually caused motivated me but i remember the boston marathon was the first thing my friends and i thought of when we said we're going to run a marathon so you know that it's such a, a huge force for for people getting started with running so anyway um i don't think we've ever done an episode about marathon training which is really surprising to me because that's 
you know, so much of what we talk about, you know, what our examples are about. But looking back through our podcast archives, I didn't see an episode that was called Marathon Training Start to Finish, right? <laughs> Which is such a, would be a perfect title. <laughs> yes, that can be the title. <laughs> Maybe it will be. <laughs> Yeah, no, we I, we've done a lot on just training in general, and and we even did an, an ultra marathon podcast, I think. Yep. Um, but have not done not done just a general marathon one, so this will be fun. This will be fun. So I'm I'm looking at this as a guide, uh, you know, to the to the the best practices for la- lack of a more interesting term, um, to running a marathon. So that could mean it's your first one. It could also mean maybe you're like me who has has one or two under your belt, and then. You know, just hasn't done it correctly, and then this is how I was after the first year of running. I had I had run a marathon, but I felt like I didn't know anything about training. Still, I just had, had you know managed to get it done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think I think this episode will be useful for people like that uh, who who know that there's more to marathon training maybe than they have put into it and gotten out of it. Uh, so we're gonna go kind of start to finish and and talk about the the before you start training, the how do you choose a training program and and what should you be looking for during your training. And then all the way up to race day, what do you do on race day to maximize the chances of everything going well? So let's uh, let's just dive there. Let's jump off the off the starting line there. Let's let's do like a race metaphor throughout this whole oh, episode. I like Wouldn't it. that be good? Yeah. Okay. So let's let's so before the gun goes off, let's <laughs> <laughs> let's talk about uh, if if you have just started to think about a marathon and you're wondering. Which one to choose? Or, or thinking about this whole idea in general, setting the goal of running a marathon. How should you begin? I think I think what people do, this is what I did, is they, they have a couple beers with their friends, <laughs> they start discussing it, and they say, let's do this, and they go on the internet, and they pick a race, and they sign up. And That's... they typically sign up for one that is too soon, because it happens to be the one that they have in mind is, you know, eight weeks away, so they uh-huh. just pick it up. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to me as well, as me and my roommate <laughs> having some beers, and he convinced me to to sign up and um I, thankfully mine was not too soon but it was the it was the local one that people wanted to run mm-hmm. yeah yep. i think my wife erin i think her uh, first marathon was conceived over a couple of beers too so <laughs> beers i guess are are big the gateway big the gateway yeah right, they to, are. Uh, to ultra run to, to marathoning yes so um needless to say that's that's Maybe not the best way to go about it. Uh, if if that's what it takes for you to get involved in in marathon or, or to you know pull the trigger, then then sure, go for it. Uh, but you can you can be smarter about it. Uh, the, the biggest thing I would say <laughs> I think you can <laughs> is uh, is is pick the right race for yourself. The, you can you can the, the races that are most exciting and that we think about and hear about aren't necessarily the the most friendly ones for beginners. Right. So picking the right race. Um, is is really important, and I don't mean just picking a race that's fairly flat. That that's certainly going to help. I mean, a flat marathon is so much easier than than one that's full of hills. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just a different experience, you know, on the back half of the marathon when you're when you're hiking uphill for so much of it, versus if you're kind of cruising downhill. I mean, it's just a, such a totally different experience, totally different race day. Um, so that's one thing, but not to say you you shouldn't take one. I mean, you for your first hundred miler took on one of the hardest ones there is. Yeah. Right? Because that was what motivated you. So if, if what really motivates you is one that is hilly, then then I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. Yeah. No, I, I think I think you, when you're choosing a marathon, you pick the race that, that you're envisioning when you're picturing yourself running a marathon. And if that's Boston or something like that, that maybe you can't get into, then you picture, or then you find a race that's similar that will, will motivate you in the same way. Um, and also, you know, maybe the local race is really the way to go because then you have all the local support teams, uh, training teams. You have um, 
your family and friends who are already there who don't have to travel and and you know that it just makes logistics a whole lot easier that if you choose a local race but really it all boils down to choosing the race that's going to get you out there every weekend to do your long runs and to do your workouts and and do all that stuff yeah so i mean it, it's helpful also to think about weather timing like what what time of year are you going sure. to be training with whatever your choice of marathon is if you got to be training over the winter uh that's that's a pretty tough thing to do your first time because I mean, it, it's hard to get out there for these 14 16 18 mile runs the first mm. time you do them, right it's just it's just a big effort um and if if you're doing most of that in bitter cold or maybe it's the rainy season you know it just that adds a layer of uh inconvenience that that i don't really think you need none of this is to say that it's impossible i mean you could have this stuff and i'm not saying it should prevent you from from the race you want to do but it's just worth considering all that stuff because it really every little one of these factors we're talking about does add up and I think I think the more you can have working for you, the better. Um, so so yeah, weather, the course itself, when it is, all these things are important. Do you think that training? Do you think a fall marathon is better for a first time marathoner than a spring marathon? I don't really know. So that's that's something uh, you probably know. Doug, that there's more. There are more PRs in fall marathons mm-hmm. because you get to train in the hot weather, and then you get to run race your race in, in something that's cooler mm-hmm. than that. So your body is adapted to running in this heat, and then it, you get a break on race day. Uh, whereas of course the spring is the opposite you get you run through the cold and then you might actually hit one of the first really hot days of the year on your race day and that's not really good right so um you know i don't know i I don't know that that's worth that sort of thing about i mean it might make for a slightly harder day i don't know i don't know that it's worth changing your whole race but but you know if you're really focused on time then that that's one thing to consider i think i think that with that in mind or not with time in mind but with with the time of the year in mind um, the fall is generally a little bit better because you have all the summer races that you can use as practice races. That's and, a good point. Yeah. Especially if you're new to endurance running, you know, to get out there and just experience some of the races. Whereas there aren't either generally most places don't have that many races during the winter. Right. Um, so it's right. harder to kind of make your build your schedule around that. Yeah, and that sort of segues into the next big consideration. And that's, that's how, how far out should your race be? How long, you know, can you can you safely say I can get a marathon? I can get the training done in this amount of time. Mm-hmm. Um, it this is a hard thing because if you give yourself too long, I think it's really easy to let the excitement and motivation die, and you let the boredom set in. So if you let's say in an ideal situation, you're already a runner, you run fairly consistently. I don't know, ten to twenty miles per week, and you know, with a lot of foresight and a lot of patience, you say, I'm going to run a marathon that is 26 weeks from now. That leaves me eight weeks from now to start to run on this consistent schedule, start to do whatever I need to do to kind of get myself ready to start, then take 18 weeks to train for the marathon, then do it. That though is a long time. So in 26 weeks of this is my big goal and it's kind of my only focus right now, that boredom is a really big factor. It was for me the first time I tried to training for a race even when i think i didn't do any of that the ideal stuff i just picked an 18 week program and jumped in <laughs> right so you know that that can be an issue so i think there's a balance here like you, you want to pick one that's far enough away that you can adequately complete a training program like definitely 16 to 18 weeks is I, for a first marathon i would say the minimum i would not try to cut a training program short uh or i don't think i'd even choose a training program that's less than 16 weeks i mean i think that's that's pushing it for a full marathon uh but, you know, I don't I don't know that you need a whole half of a year. And it really depends on where you are as a runner. I mean, some people totally. are going to need that eight weeks just to get their mileage up to the level where they can safely start, yeah. start training for a marathon. Mm-hmm. So um, that that's a big thing to consider. I don't know. So anywhere between 18 and 26, I think, is kind of your range of where you should be. 
Right. Uh, and if and if the one you want is nine months away, then it's it's not a bad idea to to decide you're going to do it. But I don't think you should start training for it now. You know, just do your other stuff. Like like keep don't don't get in marathon mode yet because it's it's hard to maintain that mode for too long for any race. It's just mm-hmm. it's a long time to be focused on one goal. Yeah, I mean, you could choose a like a half marathon goal that's three months out totally and and, and really yeah. focus on that first and not really even be thinking about the marathon and then totally shift gears because that you know that would help build the base and that would help get you in shape and, and probably get you in good you know make you faster if you were focusing on a half marathon first um but yeah no the 16 to, to 28 24 weeks is kind of the standard for most training plans uh, so you shouldn't really unless you're already in great shape or you've already run a marathon recently you shouldn't really choose a, a race that's um, that's any sooner than that. Yeah, specifically for, I mean, especially for a first-timer, just yeah. because that that build-up is just so intense. Like, that's the thing about first-time marathon training is that a lot of people get injured on it or or get burnt out from it because it just, it's a, it's an intense increase of mileage that you you get through, and it's kind of this challenge to see if you will get through it. Uh, so I just, a lot of people want to know if they can if they can train for a marathon in 12 weeks or in 10 weeks, mm-hmm. and it's their first one. And it's like, yeah, maybe you could if everything went really well. Uh, and maybe it, it would go fine. You'd have a great race day result. But just, I think if you want the odds to be in your favor, give yourself more time than that. What about people who ask, do you need to have run a, a half marathon first? Yeah, that that's a very, very common question. And uh, it kind of goes into the discussion of, of goal setting uh, a little bit. I, I don't think you need to have run a half marathon when you decide you're going to run a marathon. Right. But I think it's really helpful to have run a half marathon and even raced an actual half marathon, not just run 13.1 in your training, but actually do a half marathon race. It's really helpful to do that along the way of training for your first marathon. If you've got the time and the ability to train for a half marathon, then start over with a marathon program. And maybe in that point, you can kind of slightly shorten it in some ways or jump in with higher long runs because you're already running 13.1 and you don't need to go back to six miles on the weekend or whatever it is. Um, that's a good thing. I think there's lots of benefits to having done the race sometime during your training, done a half, right? Because then you can you can estimate your pace, which is really helpful. A lot of people start their first marathon without any real clue of of what kind of pace they can handle because they, they follow the advice, which is typically good advice, to run your long runs one to two minutes slower than you could possibly run that day because you're not trying to you know kill yourself on, on your long run day. You just want to get the miles in and do the minimum damage possible to your body. So you run them really slowly, as you know, Doug, um, as a slow runner. <laughs> as the non-winner. Um, yeah, as the not non-winner. E- I mean, we should be clear that I didn't, I didn't even come close. <laughs> you know, I was like 21st or something. Out of and... 100 something, right? Yeah. That's not too bad. Top 20%. Yeah. Anyway, um, as I was saying, it's, it's good advice to do that. Uh, but, but the problem with doing all your long runs at, at one to two minutes slower than you could do it if you had to is that you show up for race day without really any clue of what you're capable of, and, and then that's what leads often to going out too fast because you get caught up in the excitement, and then you crash at mile 18, and then your whole day's ruined, and it just feels like a terrible experience. So if you can get a half marathon in, race a half marathon some point in your training, uh, that's a really good thing because that will you can use some online calculators and figure out what is an appropriate marathon pace for me, and you've got so much more information at that point than if you just are kind of going in there blind. So that's... Uh, that's right. Oh, and the, so the last thing that I add there, how is it tying to the goal setting? Um, you can, ha- you know, we talk about small steps all the time. We talk about not going for something too giant right now 
Uh, yet at the same time, we always talk about having these big and exciting goals that are that are really big stretches and that motivate you. The marathon can totally be that big, exciting goal for you, and the half marathon can be one of your steps along the way there. So I think it's really important to – a lot of people, I think, get afraid of, of a marathon, and they'll say, well, I should run a half marathon first. So then they make the half marathon their goal, and they don't let themselves even think about anything beyond that until they've done it. But then that's not exciting enough, so they never actually do the half marathon, don't actually get anywhere. So have the marathon, or whatever your big goal is, have that in there. Like, know that that's the thing. Put it on your computer monitor background. You know, think about it. Get excited about it. Tell people about it. Do all that. And then have the half marathon be your stepping stone that's on the way there. And maybe it's not the first one. Maybe you've got to run a 10K first. Uh, but but make these things steps toward that big goal. But have that really big thing in the background, and and that's okay. It's okay to have this big, crazy, exciting goal that you might fail at. That's that's part of what makes you likely to do it. So that's my rant. I like it. Good. N- nothing to add. Okay. Um. So that's kind of the before you start training. What about Doug? When it comes time to actually train, let's say you put in eight weeks of of kind of pre-training or four or five weeks of, of getting your miles up, some three and four mile runs, and you're at the point where you're you're getting a solid 15 miles in every week and it's not causing you any real stress, uh, and it's time to start training. What do you, Doug Hay, award-winning running coach, look for in a training plan? Yeah, well, I mean, the first thing I would say is to actually get a training plan, to have some sort of plan of action. Mm-hmm. From uh, rockercrunner.com, I from, imagine. From rockercrunner.com right, yep. or, you know... <laughs> Or Nomad Athlete uh, Roadmap. Yeah, of course. <laughs> on roadmap. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but no, to, to have some sort of plan of action and not just kind of go at it blindly. Yes. Uh, but, but, that'd, that'd be a terrible idea. I mean, I don't know if anyone's done that, but, that, but you should I'm not sure do that. I'm sure people do that all the time. I, I mean, I don't know what kind of person would just say, I'm going to run a marathon, so I'm just going to run, and then come race day, I'll run it. <laughs> I mean, that's, but I, I, I would imagine there are people like that. It's just crazy. Yeah, it is so, crazy. Yes, agree. Have a plan. No, but but when you're looking at a plan and you're looking to choose a plan, the things you want to look for is is variety in the types of running. Um, most of it should be that aerobic, uh, slow running, that easy pace, that conversational pace is what um, I like to say and a lot of people like to say. So where you're running so slow that you could have a full conversation and full sentences with, with someone else. Um, and that should make up about 50% of your training, about 45 to 50% of your training. Um, but then aside from that, you also want to have speed workouts uh, a good marathon training plan does have some sort of of track work or tempo work or some sort of speed workouts that are one maybe two times a week um in a more advanced plan you you might have two times a week in a in a beginner plan where the goal is to really just finish uh then it's probably only going to be one time mm-hmm. um and then of course there's the weekend long run which will make up uh, about 25 to 30 percent of your miles for the week, weekly miles, um, and and that's that's really going to be where you're you're learning how to run far. You're learning how to handle the nutrition and handle uh, your fluids, and and learn how to be able to run for several hours uh, like you would during the during uh, the marathon. And that that's a really important part of your first marathon training is those long runs, those long run miles, and just getting your head around going that far. I mean, I remember. My first time I ran over 13 miles, I'd run a half marathon before, before when I started training for my first marathon. And the first time I ran over 13 miles, it was like this huge thing that I couldn't believe that I had gone that far. And I couldn't believe that there was nobody there to give me a medal when I was done. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's kind of what you're looking for is variety within the, the runs. Yeah. So I, I would agree completely that the long run is 
the most important run of of marathon training for anyone at at the level that we're talking about at your or my level you know or or just a brand new beginner i'm talking about anyone besides like elites who who have maybe all these little tweaks and all these benefits that will come from speed work and everything it just if you're new at marathon running or haven't haven't done one that you think is is really you know demonstrating of your potential uh i really think the long run is the one that that most of your focus should be around and it, you said 25 30% of your mileage for the week so it makes sense that that single run would be the one that you focus on most but that's the one people talk about marathon training and how it how it, it's going to change your whole life and they say i don't i don't have time to do that because it's just going to you know i just can't fit that into my schedule i really think like the long run is the only one of your runs that really needs to be like that like the rest of it you can do in 30 minutes a day or, or 40 minutes a day like you don't need to go much over that for most of your runs mm-hmm. uh, and they don't need a significant amount of preparation you don't need to worry that much about nutrition before and during after those weekly runs i mean maybe the harder ones sure you want to pay more attention to nutrition uh but but most of those those easy runs during the week are are totally stress-free I mean, they should be and and like you said this conversational pace where it's slow enough that when you come back from that run you might be more energized and just feel better than when you left. You should not be at all exhausted. Right. Uh, and if you are, you're you're doing too much. Like that's the big mistake that I made when I started is I just thought every run I should be exhausted afterwards or I didn't do it right. So once once that changes and you, you realize that the bulk of your mileage, maybe eighty percent of it, is at, at a pace where like it's not hard to do that pace and, and it feels maybe even good. So um you know th- that stuff during the week should not be stressful at all. It around that long run, like that's it's really just the one day a week that that your whole life needs to revolve around training, and it's only for part of the day too. So like, yeah, yeah if it's a Saturday, you probably shouldn't go out on your Friday night thing. Like, you want to treat it with respect and and eat a good meal the night before, get to bed early so you can get up if you're running early, uh, eat a good meal before. So like, it's yes for that for that maybe twenty hour period, your life is kind of revolving around the training. Um, and it should like that's that's the run, run that really matters. And if you did no other runs, you could you could probably have a decent shot of finishing your marathon if all you did was long runs, right? Uh, I mean, you're asking for injury. Yeah, you're you're inviting injury. Yeah, in uh, your front not at all sure. suggesting that someone do that. <laughs> no. But if you were going to pick one type of run to do, I, yeah. I would do that over <laughs> over the three and four milers. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's be clear. I'm not at all advising people just do long runs for your training. Uh, but but I really think they are that important, and they're they're that challenging. They're they're a hard run to do for sure. Yeah, no, but you're right. I mean, most people, if they already have some sort of workout routine or running routine, their life isn't going to significantly change, except for that long run. And that long run, for for a lot of people, won't really get that long um, until you know halfway through the plan. Then, of course, it starts getting 13, 14, 15, up to 20 miles, uh, maybe even 21 miles. And, and those the first time you're running that far... It's going to take a while, and then it's going to take some time to recover. So, you know, that really kind of does shift your day, for sure. But it doesn't, it's not, training for a marathon is not this major time suck that you can't do with a full-time job and a family and and all that kind of stuff. Right. All right, so on the topic of long runs, um, let's talk about how far they should be. There's a lot of people that want to know, how many 20 milers should I do during my training and should I go beyond that? Like I get that question about the marathon roadmap. Sometimes people say, how come there's no 22 and 24 mile run in here when the race is 26? Um, what, what is your take Doug for a first marathoner? What's, what's the appropriate number of 20 mile runs, if any, and should they go any beyond that? Yeah. Uh, you know, this is something that a lot of people, there's a lot of differing opinions on. Uh, there are a lot of training plans that really never go above 17 miles. Um, and others that will have a couple of 20 milers and a 21 miler even in there. 
Uh, for a first-time marathoner, I think you should hit 20 miles. I think you should know what that feels like. Yep. Um, and to one time is probably enough, but to have another another few runs that are above 18. So at least three runs that are above 18, one of them being at least um, at least 20 miles. Okay. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that that's sufficient. So the reason you don't go above that is because there's not really any reason to. At that point, um, you know, you, if you can run 20 miles, if your legs are strong enough to carry you 20 miles, then they can carry you 26 miles. Yeah. I think, I think as you, you kind of said, uh, a huge part of it is – is the mental thing and the confidence mm-hmm. uh, because if you if you head to and I've done this I've, I've had races where I got injured along the way and ended up having to only having to cut off the training at after 16 mile run uh, a 16 mile run was the farthest I got into the program might have been I don't know eight to ten weeks before the race itself and I said I I'm hurt enough that I still want to do this race but I can't really do any more training and I understand that it's not going to be my best possible race but I'm just going to do it and there's so much uncertainty then there's there's 10 miles that are unknown to you and it's like that that's a terrifying thing and it just creates a lot of stress and anxiety around the race um so i mean maybe out of necessity it might have to happen sometimes but uh if you can get to 20 i think that's i think way more than 18 it just feels like you know you know what you're doing when you come into the race and then you can manage those six and those last six are still going to be terrible like i promise you they're going to hurt so much they're going to be terrible for everybody yeah right (laughs) yeah they're going to be terrible but I think I think that confidence that you, that you know you've done twenty and that it's just another ten k beyond that. Uh, I think that that really helps a lot. Yeah. So I don't one one kind of distinction about long runs that I've made is I, I really think a few things that that I mentioned the, the doing them at the pretty slow pace and I think for a first timer or a new marathoner that's still what I would recommend do them at that pace that is basically your easy run pace like don't go any faster than that because you don't, your body doesn't need any more strain or stress than what a 20-mile run is already going to do for it. Um, however, I found that I only started you know, achieving my time goals once I started allowing myself to do long runs at a faster pace. So if you run a few marathons and you've kind of plateaued, that's one of the restraints to kind of, or the constraints, I should say, to relax now, this idea that you have to do your long runs at a slow pace. You can start to speed them up, uh, you know, maybe get up to, to 30 seconds slower than your per mile than your goal marathon pace, maybe even faster than that for some of them. Uh, so that, that helped me a lot. And so did adding in more long runs. Once I knew that I could handle them because I had now done three or four, you know, decently successful marathons where I could do it without injury. Then I could start to add in more of these difficult 20 milers. And and by the time race day came, I felt like I was really well prepared better than I ever had been before. Uh, but that's only because I had done races before. So if you're brand new, just be okay with just doing one and do it at a slow pace and, and take the psychological benefit from that and the confidence from that. Uh, but, but yeah, I think one is very important. Yeah, no, I think, I think that's a good point. And, and, and for a lot of runners, it's tempting to first timers because of that confidence thing, it's tempting to try to get in two or more 20 milers. And, and the, I would just advise against that only because it is a little bit risky. And, and as you're building up in the mileage, you're, you're doing, you know, some, you're putting some strain on your body and, and you don't want to risk injury by by going too much. But if you've if you've done it before, if you've run the race before, definitely at least two twenty milers, um, maybe a twenty one miler in there. Um, and and I love the the idea of speeding up your long runs as you have more experience. Um, and and I even my favorite marathon workout or or long run workout is um, is to do the last quarter at um, at race pace. So you're after your miles easy for the first three quarters and then you shift gears a bit and go into the race pace um 
speed and and really kind of push your body and and push your mind uh, just to know what it feels like to be that tired and, and running that hard. You know, we've mentioned goal pace and race pace now, uh, which is a few times, which kind of implies that that everyone should have a target, a time goal when they when they run their first marathon. And we didn't really address that earlier. Uh, I, I'm personally a fan of not having any time goal when you when you sign up for a first marathon. I think you should make the goal just to finish the race because I've just seen so many people who their their race day and and kind of as a result their whole whatever five or six months of training kind of goes down the toilet because they do the first 10 miles too fast and then they crash at 18 and they end up walking which i've done walking the rest of it in from there um so i I just don't think people should have time goals for the first marathon and i I don't think you also don't want to run a marathon that's, that's really good and strong but misses this time goal in your head by two minutes and suddenly you feel like you've failed when mm-hmm. when you just ran a marathon which so many people will never do in their life uh so i'm i'm a big fan of not having a time goal if you're the type of person who can still find motivation in that that yeah. that's the caveat if you if you not going if you're not going to feel motivated without a time goal then then yeah you're going to need a time goal uh in that case i would urge you to to just be really conservative with it and and pick one that you're almost certainly going to beat if you had known that you were never going to come close to qualifying for boston in that first marathon that you ran would you have been would you still want to do it yes i would i would have in the first one after that probably not the first one was exciting i didn't i mean i wanted to qualify for boston in that first race but it wasn't until after i missed it by 103 minutes that i <laughs> got really excited by it because then it was like wow you know i started thinking about what would it mean for me to be that like how what kind of shape would i have to be in hmm. Um, however, if I had, if I had just not been an idiot and, and paced myself decently and known something about how to pace a race like that, instead of taking off and running the first, whatever, five to eight miles at that Boston qualifying pace, uh, I would have had a much better first marathon day for sure. Yeah. Okay. So we have now talked about training plans. We've talked about runs and things like that. We haven't talked about the flip side of the the actual training the running and that's the recovery part which is really really important uh we've mentioned how hard that mileage buildup is and how really the whole challenge of a first marathon is just avoiding injury as as the mileage increases uh so recovery is a huge part of that and I, first of all recovery can take a couple different forms there's there's what how do how do your workouts change like what does your workout schedule look like uh and then there's what do you eat and then there's kind of what other stuff do you do do you do foam ro- foam rolling or stretching or all that you know strength training things that can all help you recover um the the big simple key for me with with recovery is is just to remember that you don't want to be stringing hard workouts together day after day so this as i mentioned was the big mistake that i made was that i was just doing my my during the week runs at a pace that was way way too fast uh i don't really know i don't remember what the pace was or well, I mean, I think I think I was trying to do the the Boston qualifying pace for like all my short runs, <laughs> and it was like I would just finish them exhausted, and I'd be like, "Well, that was a really good workout," and I got it, and the next day I'd do the same thing again, <laughs> and it's no wonder I got hurt. So, what what you need to do, and what I didn't have any success until I finally understood, was that at a minimum, you, there should be a day of rest. Well, I shouldn't say at a minimum because there are people who who can handle two workouts, you know, in, in a row perhaps, and then take recovery after that, but. Uh, for me, kind of a personal rule for myself and any plans that I make, after any hard workout day, there's going to be an easy run day or an off day. Uh, I think that just that alternating is a really, really good thing. Uh, let yourself have a recovery day, you know, in between any two tough workout days, and uh, that that's something I think is really important. So yeah, I mean, a common structure is a is a workout on Tuesday, 
I, uh, another workout on, of some sort on Thursday and then the long run on Saturday. So you have active recovery days, easy runs in between some of those and complete rest days uh, in there as well. And we've talked about it before on this podcast, but you don't want to be one of these single speed runners where where all your stuff is kind of at the same pace, where it's hard for, for an observer maybe to tell the difference between your your supposed workout day and your supposed easy day. Yeah. Because what so many runners do, particularly when they're not training for something or not following a plan um, and just kind of going out and running, is they run the same pace every single time they go out. And that pace is neither fast enough to really be a good workout nor slow enough to you know give you some of that recovery benefit or the aerobic benefit. Um, so you you want your training to look like peaks and valleys of intensity day to day. Uh, that means lots of highs followed by lots of very very lows, and I, don't, I just mean lows in terms of low intensity. Um, so when we say the conversational pace, we mean it like that. That you really should be able to carry on a conversation without difficulty at all and if you try to actually go do it you'll you'll realize what speed that is and how slow it is yeah I mean, it, really it, people will be surprised at how slow that that really is it it feels at least i mean for me it feels like i'm i'm almost embarrassed to be running that slowly <laughs> outside like i feel like cars are gonna look at me like be like what is that guy doing he's not quite running you know it, it just looks weird and it, and it feels weird but that's what recovery is and and those runs are beneficial and you can get to really enjoy those runs i just put on a podcast or something and go out and do those and kind of just don't think about running the whole time, but it's 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 nice to be moving at at such a uh, relaxed intensity, but but moving nonetheless uh, while you're listening to something or thinking about something or whatever. So uh, make sure you build those days in there, and then make sure your workout days. If you've decided to build in actual workout days, make sure those are tough. Make sure they are really difficult, and by the end of those, you are pretty tired. Uh, so have those peaks and valleys. So that's that's one thing. Diet, of course, also a really really big factor in recovery. Um, I mean, we're on the No Meat Athlete podcast. No, I almost called it the No Meat Athlete Radio. That'd be a good idea. <laughs> we're on the No Meat Athlete Radio here, so <laughs> of course we're going to advocate uh, for plant-based diets. Lots and lots of athletes who are who are at the top of their sports actually do choose this diet for what it does for their recovery. Specifically, they say that this diet allows them to recover faster than the competition, therefore getting in more workouts if that's the goal and therefore having better results when it comes time for the performance. Uh, they are not eating Oreos or Numinos or, you know, any number of vegan junk foods, French fries, Coca-Cola. These are all vegan things that that aren't the part of an athlete's diet. So yes, eat a plant-based diet if, if you're inclined to, uh, but make it based on whole foods. I really don't think you need to overthink things. Like you don't need some crazy amount of supplements or protein powders or any of that stuff. Uh, Focus on whole foods. I really think if you just eat nuts and fruits and vegetables, whole grains now and then, I think beans, of course. Um, I mean, I, I really think that's that's about as good as a, of a diet as there is. Do you get more specific than that, Doug? Like look at numbers and, and percentages of carbohydrates and proteins and fats. Do you care much about that? I don't. I You know, I haven't done that in, in years. And, and, and my recovery, honestly, I... I think my recovery is better now than it ever has been in my entire life. And, and that's mostly because I'm eating a cleaner diet than I ever have in my entire life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'm not paying at all attention as to how, at how much protein I'm getting or, or anything like that or yeah. fat or all that stuff. It's just, there you go. Eating. And look, you're finishing in the top 20% of <laughs> your races. There you go. <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, no surprise there that, that we are advocates of the plant-based diet and, uh, you know, but I, I think it's, uh, 
I guess it's it's very easy and common for someone to be ethically motivated to eat this way and then start citing how great it is. I don't want to fall into that camp, but uh, you know the, the numbers of, of athletes that that you see doing this at at high levels and on major stages is increasing, and I think that's that kind of really speaks to uh, the fact that that it's legit. Sure. So, uh, what about nutrition around workout? This is a question I get all the time from people. Interestingly, they want to know what do you eat before a workout. That comes up way more often than what do you eat after a workout or during a workout. It's always what do you eat before a workout. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's let's kind of dive into that a little bit in just the simplest way possible. Um, do you have anything in particular, Doug? I mean, my my without getting into numbers, we you can do the three to one, four to one, five to one carbohydrate to protein thing. But you know, honestly, I just don't think you need at, at the level of I'm running my first marathon or I'm running my second marathon. I don't think that really matters. I think I think if you eat mostly carbohydrate before, during, and after your workouts, and it's something fairly simple like sugar, um, and a little bit of protein, that's that's going to be adequate. Yeah, I mean, my favorite thing before most workouts, unless of course it's a really long workout or something like that, a really long run, is is simply fruit and water. Just mm-hmm. having a little bit of fruit, a banana or an apple, or you know, just something very simple like that. Um, is it is an easy, quick, easy snack, and it'll fill you up and give you those those sugars and those carbs. Yeah, it really doesn't have to be any more complicated than that. I think some fruit or fruit juice before a workout is totally fine. Uh, typically, I'll, I'll tend towards fruit juice if I don't have a lot of time before the workout. If I've got only twenty minutes before I'm, you know, if I'm just running out the door and and I've got to get something in me, that's that's when the juice is going to be somewhat better than even whole fruit because it's going to get to your muscles faster. So that's before the workout. So what about what about during workouts? What do you recommend there? Well, I mean, I, what I think is that you, you really don't need that much stuff during most of your workouts. We mentioned that the long run is kind of the big focus of, of the week. Um, and, and if you're, like, especially during easy runs, I think it's a mistake to bring along a sports drink during that because a lot of people will do that and, and you know, they'll drink, I don't know, 200 calories of sports drink during their <laughs> during their, their easy run. And it's not to say that, like, that's bad. I'm not saying you're not, I mean, maybe you're not trying to lose weight or anything and you don't care about this caloric deficit, but you just don't need to take in those calories for a 30 or 40 minute run that's at this really really low intensity that we talked about. So, I think for most of your workouts you don't really need anything and if it's a, you know, half hour speed workout like yeah, maybe some water is going to be nice. If you want to have a sports drink then fine. Uh but I just don't think you really need that much. Uh it's really the long run where where you do want to have something. Typically the guideline I follow is 30 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour. Um it's a wide range, but just as long as I know that I'm in that range, then I'm I'm going to be fine. So I, I aim to do that. For anything that's lasting more than really about an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, I'll start to make sure I have something near the end of that workout. Uh, and if it's going to be significantly longer than that, then from the very beginning, I'll eat something. And I mean, honestly, the guideline is very much the same here. For me, it's just, it's just going to be more fruit, maybe fruit juice, um, I just don't do much of the of the fancy stuff or or the calculations of I need to be getting exactly four to one carbohydrate to protein during this long run. Not to say that that's a bad thing. Like you you will probably get a benefit. That that's a pretty clearly demonstrated ratio. That like that's that's the optimal ratio. Um, but but for me, you know what what my goals are now in in sports, and it's just like it's just not worth it to put that extra effort. And I'd rather just do something that's fairly relaxed. So yeah. that's what I do. I know you do something fairly different though, right? A little bit. I I'm a fan of the energy gels and the energy gummies. Um, <laughs> I know they're not whole foods, and I know that they're certainly not natural. But um, I think that, that they're incredibly effective. Sure. Uh, you yeah. know, I, sh- I should say that I don't I don't do I don't really touch anything if it's going to be less than a two hour workout. Maybe mm-hmm. maybe if it's going to be a harder two hour workout, 
Um, but once you start creeping up on the two-hour range and, and then beyond, uh, it is important to be consuming some sort of um, some sort of carbohydrate or, or, or fuel um, throughout that run. And so I do. I stick with the the gels normally. Huma gels are kind of my favorite. They're um, a more natural gel, mm-hmm. uh, and and they. I you know I take one of those every thirty to forty five minutes, depending on how long the run is. If it you know during the ultra marathon, I took one um, almost every thirty minutes, every thirty to forty minutes. Um, but you know if I was doing a three hour long run, it it would be less than that. Um, so you know I mean I think that I think that those are good because they're easy to carry. They're easy to ingest, uh, and and most marathons offer some sort of gel or, or gummy at a few different aid stations. So if you can train yourself with those throughout the your training, then you can use them on race day, and and they'll be they'll be there for you and effective for you there. Yeah. So one thing that I want to bring up that I think is worth mentioning is I think people you know like I jokingly booed that you said gels, but I think people probably do balk at that. People who are like really into whole and and fresh and natural foods. We'll say, how can you eat something like that? Uh, I mean, I think what's what's important to realize is that optimal performance and optimal health are are different goals, and, and you've you're, you've got to choose one of them or some balance of them. Um, we haven't mentioned Mike Arnstein recently, but we used to talk about him fairly often. It seemed uh, he he's one of the, my favorite examples of this because he's a really great ultra runner, uh, has several hundred mile records, several hundred mile wins. Otherwise, though, when, when he's not running, he's known as, or even when he is running, he's known as the fruitarian. He eats raw fruits and vegetables and almost nothing but that. But he eats gels during these 100-mile races because he says it's about performance. Like when he's racing, his goal there is to do the best he can, to win that race typically. Mm-hmm. So he wants to put the best thing in his body that's going to help him do that. And that's a different choice from the best thing in his body that's that's going to be, you know, if he could only eat one food his life for the, for the rest of his life for optimal health, what would it be? Like that's a totally different question. So... Gels are are going to help you because they don't have the fiber in them that that fruit typically does, um, and and you know they're they're made for the specific right. thing, right? They're optimized for that. Yeah, yeah, right. So I mean, you could argue that that it'd be much much healthier to eat whole fruit, but you know if it's just one long run a week that you're talking about, or or if maybe maybe some people it's only race day, which is a couple times a year, you know it doesn't have any impact on your health that you chose something that is designed to optimize performance. So uh, I think it's important just to realize there is a trade off there, and for some people who are really really serious athletes, then after all their workouts, they're going to be and during all the workouts, they're going to be taking stuff that and I don't mean taking stuff, but eating food that, that isn't like... In, Shooting it up. <laughs> not, not exactly that, but, uh, you know, eating food that, that's not whole, and that is processed, and that is designed to be optimal for recovery. And that's because they have a goal. Their priority at, in that moment is to, you know, optimize the recovery, and that's a different goal from do what is, you know, without a doubt the healthiest thing in the long run. So right. so I think it's an important thing. Like, no, no one's saying that gels are good for you, but if it's now and then and they help you to run well and, and do well in long runs and races, then for a lot of people, that's the right choice. Yeah. I believe so it. Don't worry, Doug. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you're, your, you're, your stamp I of approval. I came to your defense. <laughs> so what about after the run? After the run uh, is is one that I think people do get worked up about what to do. It's something I think you can be pretty simple about the way you do it. What I still like to do is immediately after the workout, get in something immediately in, into my body as soon as possible that uh, is simple sugars, and it's just going to replace some of that that carbohydrate that was lost, replenish that micro, muscle glycogen, um, and and that's going to be you know any any sort of fruit juice is is wonderful at that point. Typically, I'll do tart cherry juice, who happens to be our sponsor of this episode, um, but I'll, I'll do that. My wife will do that after pretty much any running workout or even in the weight room these days. Um, 
I like that. I mean, but the idea is fruit juice immediately after, and then something like like an hour or two later, just kind of the normal higher protein typical meal. Might be beans and rice. Uh, might be a pasta dish with beans in the sauce. Might be a smoothie. You know, just like a, a normal meal. But that immediate post workout thing. That's when you want the sugar. Uh, so that's when I do the juice or or some sort of like simple white white carbohydrate, white flour, white rice. Not another good example of something that's not an ideal thing for long term health, but in that moment, that's what's going to help you most with recovery. Yeah, and I think that the the key there is immediately after the, the run. A lot of people will wait to let their body kind of calm down, and and or you know they drive home or they get lost doing other things, doing stretches or a core routine or something like that. And, and it's 45 minutes or an hour after their, their run and they still haven't put anything in their body. And, and that, that's, that's a mistake. You want it, you want to get it in with immediately after within that 15 to, to 20 minute window. Yes. So I've talked about tart cherry juice a lot. Uh, as I said, they are the sponsor of this episode. Uh, I've done, I guess it was two years ago now. I did a big series where I did a tart cherries challenge and wrote a series of three posts for them. Last year I was an ambassador and wrote, I think, six blog posts. We had an episode earlier this year that was sponsored for them. Uh, I'm a really, really big fan of tart cherry juice. It's one of those things that it's, you know, ever since I did that thing, I guess it was three years ago now where I did their challenge. Uh, it's just been something that has kind of stuck with me. Like long after I've stopped getting free samples of it, we still go to the store and buy it. And, and it's just kind of become a part of our routine and, you know, I mean, the reason I do that, like, yes, you could choose another fruit juice for, for your post-workout thing. Uh, I like that tart cherries have this extra benefit with them, with which is the, the idea that they help you to do, like, literally help you to recover faster. And this is not just a made-up fact. Uh, there's some science behind it. So when I, when I wrote this first post about them, I mentioned some of the stuff, and I'm just going to read a few things from there. Um, one of them is that, is that runners who drank Montmorency tart cherry juice before and after the long-distance races experienced faster recovery of strength, less muscle pain compared to those who drank a different beverage. So the idea is that they help you recover faster, and it's thought usually that this is due to the anti-inflammatory compounds. That's kind of the big thing. So what what you know when you think anti-inflammatory and you think running, a lot of people, what they think about is ibuprofen. And that's something that I would say is probably bigger in the ultra-running scene than in the marathon scene. Um, but... Not to say that it's not part of marathon running, because I remember back in the day when I would used to run marathons, um, and, and like you know, just when I was a new marathon runner, that was something I was seriously considering: was should I take some sort of pill? Like if I if I if I know I'm going to have some sort of injury issue, and that was the always thing. There was always an injury I was battling, and it was what should I do during the race that's going to help keep my foot from blowing up and ruining this whole race day? And I remember they were saying for a while it was that acetaminophen was the only safe anti-inflammatory. Um, you know, for runners because of, I don't know if it was kidney stuff or stomach stuff, all that, all those chemical things, um, you know, have to have something with them. And, and in the ultra running scene, I know it's become, it's something of, of an actual like known danger, right? It, taking ibuprofen is the super tempting thing, right? <laughs> right? When you're, when you're, when you're in a lot of pain, but it is, you're, you are, when your body is, is being stressed in the way that it is during a big long race like that, it's, it's, you're definitely putting yourself at risk. Yeah, I, I remember during my hundred, like I, I think I, I put it off for a long time, and I said I'm just not going to do it. And then I, at one point, did it, and it was like this miracle recovery that I suddenly felt. <laughs> um, but and it's something I could see how someone who was really into that and like who it was really important that they run their absolute best time is going to just eat or take ibuprofen the entire race uh, and probably have a big advantage for it. But I just think it, it's just a really, really dangerous thing to do that. Um, Scott Jurek, actually, who we all know, the vegan ultra runner. 
Um, he is a, is a tart cherry juice advocate, and he what he says is that it allows them to recover sooner without taking needless chemicals that do more harm than good. So, I mean, I think that's I think that's exactly the the thinking is that I'd rather do something and you know have get those anti-inflammatory benefits, um, but but from something that is that is much more natural. So, a lot of people do actually ask when I talk about tart cherry juice because I'm a fan of it. Um, is they ask like, what about all the sugar? Like, aren't you just adding a lot of sugar into your diet? That's why I put it immediately after the workout. Because as I said before, that's that's just what you want anyway during then. So why not just have it then? So, um, I mean, that's that's pretty much post-workout as far as diet goes. Any, anything else? Like, do you do a lot of, like, super foody stuff, Doug, or? No, maca? you know, I know I try to keep it pretty simple and, and, you know, just follow the rules that we talked about of getting something in pretty soon after the workout and, and keeping it, um, you know, high sugar and, and pretty simple. Yeah, and it's something that, like, I hope we're not making it sound overly complicated here, and I hope that this our approach is, is coming off actually as quite a simple approach to around workout nutrition, because uh, it's something I know that it stresses a lot of people out, and, you know, just all the thinking of it and all the planning of it, like, when people think about training, they start thinking about all that, but I think as you just start to do it and pay attention to a few basic principles, you can kind of streamline the way that you personally like to do it, and it's it's that 80-20 rule, right? Where 20% of the effort gets you 80% of the results. So if you can do a decent job of of fueling before and during and after workout, you're getting most of the results. And if you want to go that extra mile, see what I did there, extra mile, <laughs> then you can probably get a little bit more, but it's going to cost you a lot of thinking and energy and all that. So um, pretty simple approach to post-workout stuff. We haven't really talked about like the other part of recovery, which would be kind of stretching, foam rolling. I think I think foam rolling is a really wonderful thing. You buy a fifteen or twenty dollar foam roller from Target or Amazon or whatever, and do it while you're watching TV at night. You know, ten fifteen minutes a day. Uh, it feels like a massage. It hurts at first, and then it starts to feel kind of good. So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it hurts. <laughs> let's not. You don't think it feel good? I mean, I guess it feels good after the initial. I few feel like minutes, the first. But... I feel like the first few weeks you use a foam roller, it's just torture. Mm. And then it starts to feel like good in the way that a massage sometimes kind of hurts, but it's also good. Yeah. Yeah. A foam roller or massage or, uh, yeah, massage balls. So you could use like a, you could use like a baseball or something like that, but they have these massage balls that are just kind of hard balls that will dig deeper into certain trigger points and Mm -hmm. certain areas that that are good. I'm I'm actually more into those right now than, than the typical foam, like a, round cylinder foam roller wow look at you bold statement oh i know bucking the trends bucking the trends all right so before we get on to the last section of this marathon episode which is the race day and the the hours leading up to it uh let's take a quick second to thank our sponsor thank you cherry marketing institute for sponsoring today's episode this organization is funded by growers and processors of montmorency tart cherries in north america When you choose this homegrown superfruit, not only are you supporting small family orchards in the U.S. and Canada, but you're choosing a cherry with a unique nutrient profile. In fact, there are more than 50 studies exploring the potential benefits of the Montmorency varietal, ranging from inflammation and exercise recovery to sleep, which are benefits unique to this variety of cherry. As a matter of fact, Douglas, a growing number of elite athletes and everyday exercisers are incorporating Montmorency tart cherries in their training routines, that's me, as they've been shown to help reduce strength loss and aid recovery after extensive exercise. Montmorency tart cherries are available year-round in dried, frozen, juiced, and concentrate forms, and you can find them at your grocery store. Go check them out. Learn more about their benefits at www.choosecherries.com. 
I think that might be the first time you've ever called me Douglas. <laughs> I think it probably was, and it was in the middle of an ad. <laughs> okay, so uh, let's talk about the race. The or, race and the, the things big day. Up to yes, the big day. So obviously there's going to be a taper period. This would be one of the hazards of, of just making up your own workout plan if you just forgot to do tapering. <laughs> <laughs> and you thought you were showing up in peak condition because you would run a 20-miler a couple days prior to your race. Uh, you, any, any good training program is going to have you tapering for two to three weeks, meaning you've drastically reduced your mileage, uh, so that you come into the race feeling really fresh and hopefully your legs feel great and you've done just enough running that, that you feel good and not like, you know, not like you haven't run in weeks, but not exhausted and you've got everything in you got the tank topped off. Yeah. I, my, my rule, and this is, I'm totally stealing this and I have no idea who I'm stealing it from is that if you're not itching to be running on race day, if your body's not just telling you it needs to go run, then you haven't tapered enough. Mm, that, that rule is wrong for me. I never want to run. <laughs> I, I never itch to run. <laughs> so you're in a constant state of tapering, just waiting for that day when you... <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, no, I envy people who, who feel like sometimes they have to go run. I, I rarely feel that way, but but good on you for having that. No, but I mean like your body is like rested. You, know, you, gotta, yes. you want to be active. You want to go out there. And yeah, of course. So you want to be tapered, of course. Um, people, a lot of people ask about what should you be eating in the week leading up to the race? How should your diet change? I don't personally think it should change that much. Uh, I've heard some people suggest that you should actually be eating a little bit extra during that race, kind of go back for seconds. That's what I did for a while. Um, but, you know, I, I've also heard people argue the opposite, which is if you're tapering and you're now burning less calories than your body's used to burning, and if you start increasing the food intake, then, you know, you kind of have a lot of factors suddenly pushing towards putting on weight when really what you want to be doing is maybe even losing a little bit of weight not, yeah. not trying to get down to a racing weight or anything but losing a little bit wouldn't be bad if it's one or two pounds and it doesn't cost you any strength yeah you definitely don't want to just gorge on junk food because you're about to run a yes. you know a marathon totally uh, don't want to do that yeah so um i would say drinking is probably more uh like drinking water staying mm-hmm. hydrated uh, the, the especially the last few days before the race is really yeah, I, I mean, like, that, I totally agree with that. And I think, honestly, the day before, I think it's a good time to drink fruit juice and sip sports drink and just kind of add extra sugars and carbohydrates to your diet that you wouldn't typically have in there. Because uh, a lot of runners, it turns out, are are not carbo-loaded enough. As much as we talk about carbo-loading as athletes, uh, it turns out that the vast majority of runners in any marathon don't have the carbohydrate supplies that they should. Uh, and I don't mean carrying them on their bodies. I mean in their bodies. Um, but given all that, I'm sort of hesitant to tell people like in the three days before your race, drink tons of water and fruit juice and, and like totally drastically change your routine from what your body's used to doing, because that's, that's kind of the big warning is don't do anything that's new. And that's going to be all that different from what you've done. So hopefully I, mean, I think race is the perfect day to experiment. Just, just try all kinds of crazy <laughs> yeah. stuff, new shoes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, ideally, ideally he will have. On your long run days, we talked about treating those with respect and really making those the focus of your week. Uh, treat those also as as your chance to try out your your pre race fueling routine and your during race fueling routine. Um, and I don't mean just like try out something that you've done before and you want to keep practicing it, but I think you should, it's a t- that's the time to experiment is during the time leading up to the race or not not the days leading up to the race, but in those those long runs. Like that's your chance to try different things and see how it works for a long run. Um, so. I don't think you should drastically change anything. If you want to add some carbohydrate in the form typically of sugars or simple carbohydrate in that last day leading up to the race, then it's it's not a bad idea to do it. And I should clarify, the day before the race, 
maybe two, three days before the race, you can start doing that kind of thing. But I, w- I would sort of proceed with caution there. I just, I wouldn't want anyone to drastically change what's going on in their body because pre-race nerves are a real thing. And even if you've practiced it by going to a half marathon, you're going to feel some butterflies in your stomach and there's going to be lines and porta pots and it's, it's just kind of an antsy scene before a race starts. It is. Uh, so having new stuff in your body, having a giant carbo-loading meal from you know, nine hours ago that you ate at a pasta party at, at 8 p.m. when your race is at 6 the next morning, uh, which I guess isn't nine hours, but would be 10. Uh, it's just it's just a dumb idea, right? So, I mean, do the carbo loading, but do it at lunchtime the day before and don't have a big fat-laden meal. Like, just eat pretty clean, light foods. Carbohydrates are great, but, you know, you don't need a giant pasta party. And plus, that's going to affect your sleep. So I wouldn't do that. I don't do the big car- the big carbo-loading dinner. I typically do the big lunch and then something fairly light at dinner time. Yeah. I mean, I think that, that that's kind of the, the big lunch is, is something that a lot of people don't talk about, but is a good a good idea. The Where your last major meal should be around lunchtime so that then your body can fully process it and digest it. And you can you can poop it out before you hit the, hit the, nice. hit the road. Doug, I bet you are a guy who has a tradition of a pre-race beer the night before the race. I am. Yeah? Do you, yeah. Have, do you probably have a certain beer that you always do, right? I don't. No. no? <laughs> I mean, Seems like something you do. No. I, I mean, I have a I have a pre-race ritual, and a beer is definitely part of that. Nice. Um, but not a specific beer. Just any. Just any. A good IPA is a good... I don't know why, but it makes me feel like I can run faster. You know? <laughs> good. Okay. It probably can't make you run any faster, I would, I would argue. <laughs> you know, um, I, I quit drinking for an entire month before my first marathon. Did you? Thinking that that would make me run faster. Mm-hmm. Not anymore. <laughs> I, 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 I've done the same thing. I took I took a three-month break from drinking when I was in the midst of this Boston qualifying journey. And uh, what it taught me was that it didn't really do anything. So, <laughs> so, so I just went back to having an occasional drink. Okay, um, so we've talked a little bit then about what how, how your diet will change as the race approaches. Race day morning, I mean, you're treating it sort of like uh, any other workout. You don't want to try anything crazy. Um, if you're up early, then yeah, get some more, like getting some more fuel in your body at the last minute in a form that's going to be useful. Don't just think that because you eat, uh, I don't know, a big whole wheat bagel, like that's probably not going to help be available to help you four hours later. Mm-hmm. Um, but But things like fruits and juices, those typically are. Uh, so that's that's kind of what race day morning is. I've made the mistake of race day morning often of trying to eat too much, and then my stomach gets upset, and I'm just you know, I'm trying to stuff everything in so that I have this fuel for the race. Uh, but it's, I've learned not to do that. It's just not a good idea uh, to to really try to force anything or, or change what you've done. And then for the race itself, what kind of strategy, Doug, would we would we advise? I would say. To stick to the, your plan. <laughs> yep, have a plan have and a stick plan to it. And stick to it. Uh, generally, you want to negative split a marathon or even split, uh, ideally negative split, but where, where you're running, where the second half of your marathon is slightly faster than the first half of your marathon. That doesn't mean you go out super slow during your first half, but that if you keep that in as a plan, then that will keep you from going out too fast because... Um, if you go out too fast in those early miles, then you're definitely going to bonk and you're going to really struggle in the later miles. Another thing that is really helpful if you do have a time goal, and again, we don't necessarily advise first marathoners to have a time goal, is to use the, the pacing groups because most big city marathons will have people who are pacing at a certain time 
Um, and supposedly they guarantee that you'll get across the finish line around that time. <laughs> um, or I don't know. I mean, that's the idea, right? right <laughs> I have right. no idea what the percentage is. You get yeah. your money back and your uh, whole six months of training back <laughs> if they don't. No, but that's a good way to kind of stay on track, at least for a little bit before you kind of pull off on your own. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I, I have basically two keys to pre-race strat- or during race strategy uh, that are both very simple. Surprise, surprise. Uh, one is... Like you said, go out at a at a conservative pace. It doesn't need to be overly conservative, but if you've taken our advice and done some sort of test effort during your training, like a half marathon in similar conditions to what your race is going to be on, and you know roughly what your pace can be, then estimate that time, find that pace group, which I'll talk about in a minute why that's important. Um, but but aim for that time. If if you have it in you, then be conservative. T- take go aim five or ten minutes slower than the time that you theoretically should be able to run. And go out at that pace, and if you set a rule where, let's say, you get 20 miles into the race at that pace, and you still feel great, then then go ahead and go faster. Because there's, you know, something could go wrong for sure in the last six miles, but there's just not that much time where a pacing error that begins at mile 20 is going to come back to to haunt you, unless you're, you know, trying to win the race. Um, so I, I think setting some kind of rule, particularly like actually setting a hard and fast rule for your first marathon that says after mile whatever you're comfortable with. Maybe it's 18, maybe it's 20, maybe it's 22. It says, after this is when I will let myself deviate from this plan if I want to uh, speed up. But I think setting a conservative pace before that and like really saying, I know that I think I can probably run a 410 marathon today, but I'm going to go with this 420 group because I just want to be conservative and I'll let myself go fast after that. It's just so much better, like going 10 minutes too slow or five minutes too slow in that first half or first 18 miles uh, is so different from going five minutes too fast or 10 minutes too fast in those. Cause that, that will come back and get you. They say for every minute too fast that you run the first half of a marathon, you will lose two minutes in the second half. And it is not a fun feeling to feel like you, you went way too fast and now you've got to kind of like walk, run your way in and all this training you put in, all this work you put in has now kind of, it feels like it's kind of gone to waste when, when that happens. Yeah. And you know, not to, not to kind of, I know we're, somewhat wrapping up so not to end on a bad note or but until you've run a marathon it's so hard to know what that that low point feels like yeah right (laughs) um and you know you can manage the low point in several different ways and and have it not be as low as as other times but when you go out too fast and you truly bonk at mile 21 22 um it is a bad place to be (laughs) it really is it makes you retire from running it i've retired from running a lot of times (laughs) during races uh, the second part I was going to say there was was why use a pace group, and it's because even pacing, even intensity is really the key to pacing. We've talked a little bit about, about negative splitting, but the basic idea is that you don't want ups and downs in, in your the amount of effort that your body is putting forth. If you can, The more even an effort you can run throughout the race, the faster you're going to finish, the easier it will feel. So the mistake would be you know, every time in, like to maintain a constant pace so that every hill that comes, you're... Let's say you go out at, at, I don't know, nine minute miles and you run nine minute miles, no matter if it's an uphill mile or a downhill mile. Well, that's a mistake because on the uphill mile, your intensity is much greater than it is on the downhill or the flat mile if you're running a nine minute pace that entire time. So the idea would be that you're slowing down somewhat on the uphills and speeding up somewhat on the downhills and, you know, keeping it the same on the flats. Because then what you do there is hopefully managing it so that your intensity, which you could measure through heart rate or other means, uh, so that that's what's remaining the same. So that's the idea is you keep that the same uh, as much as possible. You want that to just be even and a good pacer in a pace group is going to know that and do that. So that's the reason to stay with the pace group because then you can eliminate that question of, am I going too fast on this hill? Am I going too slow on this downhill? 
Uh, and, and even just the whole question of like the, the surprise element of when you see that mile marker ahead and you realize you're actually 20 seconds off what you thought you would have been, then that's a pacing mistake. If you, if you ran a mile 20 minutes too fast or 20 minutes too slow, then you've exerted extra effort over the course of that race than you should have. So that's, that's if you run a mile 20 minutes too fast, I said 20 minutes, yeah. 20 seconds. <laughs> yes. That would be a pacing error. <laughs> that would definitely be a pacing error. Uh, yeah. Okay. If you run a mile 20 minutes too fast, that would be a, that'd be a life error. I can't <laughs> yeah. Or too slow. I mean, that would be, yeah. Anyway. Okay. Seconds, 20 seconds, 20 seconds. So anyway, pacers are good, um, because, because they will hopefully keep you at an even intensity throughout the race. So that's, uh, that's kind of it. I mean, nutrition is going to stay the same throughout the race, of course, as, as you did on your, on your long run workout days. And you know, that's it. I, Enjoy. I, I got a quick question about that. Okay. What's your, what's your thought on carrying water during, uh, during a marathon? Cause you know, a, a marathons will have water stations every one and a half to two miles generally. Mm-hmm. Um, but you don't have that during your training. So a lot of people will carry up some sort of water during their training. Do you carry that water also during the race? I I would never carry water during a marathon. Not, not if it was available. Yeah, no, me, me either. But I've noticed that a lot of people are doing that. They're people carrying do. their belts and their hydration packs and stuff. Uh, yeah, I guess I guess in some way when if you do something different from your training, you're, you're kind of banking on, you know, having the water when you need it rather than right. have the ability just to have it whenever you want it. Uh, one of the rules that I made for myself a long time ago was just that in, from the beginning of race, I would stop at every every sports drink uh, station or, or water stop along the way. And then once I got to, say, I think 20 miles into the race, I would kind of let that go out the window. If, I, if my body just said, no more Gatorade, please, then I would stop. But up until that point, I'd make sure I had it. Uh, I'm not sure I'd recommend that strategy, but it worked for me. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I, I would think if you can avoid carrying something, then then go for it. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I never really got that into carrying water during my runs. Like I tend to just to prefer to leave it in my car and then, you know, start swing back by the car after four by. or five miles. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I guess I kind of got used to not having it all the time. I just always hated carrying it. Mm-hmm. But then once I got into ultras, it, I got used to it and then it became easier to carry. Yeah. I, I don't know. It's just because I ran this, I ran the Asheville Marathon and I was surprised at how many people were, were carrying water. Hmm. Uh, and I was almost 50%, I would say, were, were carrying some sort of water, which surprised me. That is kind of surprising. It, maybe because it was on trails, they kind of thought like it's like a trail run, so you should maybe. Bring your I mean, you know, but it it isn't built as a trail race. Yeah, I but, don't know. Yeah. Anyway, I don't know. That made me think of something we didn't really mention: electrolytes, uh, which which is an important thing. Like you don't want you don't want if you if you have the, a bad an imbalance, I should say, uh, too much water, not enough salt, then you can potentially get a, a or have a create a condition called hyponatremia which is really really dangerous it's when the sodium concentration is too low in your in in the water in your body um you don't want that it's i i think if you're not if you're gonna be running a marathon in under four hours it's not a, a major concern it's just it's just kind of hard to create that condition uh in in during the time it takes to run a, a fairly fast marathon but for someone who's going to be out there you know four plus hours and if it's especially if it's a hot day, and if it's a really hot day and a hard course, then maybe someone who's even going to be faster than four hours should should be concerned about it. But basically, that's why you drink sports drink in, instead of just water. Uh, and if you're going to be drinking just water, then you need to think about it a little bit more and add some sort of electrolytes uh, because you don't want to you don't want to get overhydrated. So just mentioning that not, it's not something that is a is a major part of my thinking during a marathon, but 
uh, it is something that, that's just worth mentioning because it potentially is a danger. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I think that that wraps it up. I mean, and after that, you you get a medal. You get to lay in the grass for a little bit and you know experience the feeling of having just run a marathon, which is an interesting feeling, right? I mean, it feels. I don't know. It's hard to describe it. It's it's unlike any pretty much anything else, right? You feel awful, but you're so happy. You're so happy, and you're wearing <laughs> this medal, and it's cool, and it's just uh-huh. sort of like a weird, surreal thing. You're eating hopefully some junk food you brought along, just mm-hmm. to taste delicious. Um, yeah, and it, and it's you know you're gonna be really sore the next day, and you're even gonna be sore that day. And you wear your medal around everywhere you go, even to restaurants and stuff, and you look like a tool. <laughs> but you get to do it. Yeah, that's right. It's so, your, it's your day to do it. Yes, absolutely. So uh, that's I think that kind of wraps up our our start to finish marathon guide. What about the putting the sticker on the car part? Oh yeah, you get a twenty six point two sticker. Yeah, you got to do that definitely. Some ultra runners like you, Doug, will make fun of people who have twenty six point two stickers. No, yes, I, no I do not. I, will. I do not. No such thing. No, absolutely. That's not. why I stopped doing it. Stop. Stop starting rumors. That's not true at all. I did used to know a guy who who. Would uh, would make fun of thirteen point one stickers? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny, but I, I wouldn't do that. I think it's wonderful. You, you can put a five k sticker on your car, and I will be proud of you for running a five k. Yeah, absolutely, I think it's great. I love that people have pride in that. Yeah, me too. All right, so I think that will do it. This was fun, Doug. I got some interviews that are kind of in the works. Just Ooh. a little warning: they're coming. We're getting back to them. It's been a Anybody little bit. Of... You can announce right now. Nope, not comfortable doing that. Okay, but uh, but they are in the works and. A lot of them are interviews that I was really bad about for the past two months while we were working on this meal plan thing. I just mm-hmm. basically went silent and stopped responding to people's emails. Like, really, like really the worst I've ever done in my life. And I feel really bad about some of this. Uh, <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to, to save these friendships and, and get people to still be on. So they'll be good, assuming they happen. Yeah, and we're both in town. We, we've both been out of town a little bit. So, but the next Yeah, not stretch. a lot of ships for a little while. No. So that, that'll be fun. We'll, we'll be able to get some episodes cranked out, I think. All right. Look forward to it. Okay. See you all later.